Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we are covering a summary of everything that was discussed at the June Interpretations um, Committee meeting. And uh, to help me through that, because I didn't listen to the whole day, I'll admit to the audience, uh, but someone that did, who was there and part of the committee is Karsten Gansauger. Welcome back, Karsten. Thanks, Ruth. Glad to be here again. Did it take a whole day? Well, not quite. I think it was um, uh, around four hours. Okay. Well, you whipped through. There was quite a lot on the agenda. So yeah. <laughs> you can can you condense your your uh, mission if you choose to accept it, Carsten? Is yeah, condensing I, four hours into twenty minutes. <laughs> Good I luck. I try my best. <laughs> okay, I'll cut the small talk, and then you you can have all the the time. So there were three uh, main, I would say, papers that were all agenda decision, tentative agenda decisions that had come back for finalisation. So you can tell us if they got finalised. And then um, we talked about this last time. But the staff had started doing an education session on supply chain financing and they came back uh, to do a bit more. So we'll, we'll cover that off last. So the first one in the football in the football world was around player transfer fees. And I say football because that obviously was the fat pattern, but it could have a broader impact here with other industries that have got intangible assets. So don't stop listening if you're not football. So could you first of all give us a high level about what the issue was that got discussed? Yeah, sure. So that's right. So three tentative agenda decision finalized and one one new fun, uh, you know, issued. Uh, I'm just going to call those TAD rather than tentative agenda decision, if that's sure. okay. So, yeah. so this is so this discussion was focused on analyzing the comments we received on a TAD that we issued in November 2019. So, so on a high level, the submission asked whether a football club recognizes a transfer payment received for the transfer of a player to another club as revenue applying IFRS 15, or instead recognizes the gain or loss arising from the derecognition of an intangible in profit or loss applying IS 38. So essentially a scope question. Now, the TAD included an analysis on the accounting implications in this situation where an entity had recognized costs uh, incurred to obtain a registration right as an IS 38 intangible asset. Uh, the, the TAD concluded that in this fact pattern, the entity recognizes the transfer payment received as part of the gain or loss uh, on the recognition of the registration right applying IS 38. Uh, this means that the entity would recognize a net gain from the disposal, which is not classified as revenue, and so that it would not be appropriate to recognize revenue applying IFRS 15. However, the TAD then went on to analyze whether there might be other circumstances in which an entity would recognize the transfer payment received as revenue applying IFRS 15, and in particular analyze whether there might be circumstances where the player registration right could meet the defi definition of inventories in IS2, in which case the entity would apply IFRS 15 in accounting for the transfer payment received. So gross proceeds received as revenue. Um, I think this discussion is quite an interesting one as it's probably relevant way, as you said, way beyond the football industry. In, in fact, the relevance of intangibles in, in today's economy clearly is increasing, both I think in relation to the internal generation and acquisition of intangibles, but also in terms of business models that involve the disposal of intangibles. 
So because the implication of this discussion go way beyond just football, I think it's worth to go into a bit of detail on the discussions of this agenda item. Okay, perfect. So like you said, so it was de-recognition and intangible. And I love it how you've come up with your own acronym, the TAD, the T-A-D. Did it become an AD? Tell us the detail. What happened? Yeah, sure. So so we received a total of, I think, 18 comment letters before the deadline. I think it's fair to say that the comment letters were mostly support, supportive. So a substantial majority of the comment letters did agree with the committee's technical analysis. A few uh, others made suggestions to clarify particular aspects or, in fact, suggested that the committee recommends to the board to amend IS-38 in this regard. A very few comment comment letters actually disagreed with the committee's technical analysis. However, I think it's worth noting that several respondents who agreed with the technical analysis expressed concerns about certain aspects of the TAD with several of those expressing concerns about an entity's about an entity classifying registration rights as inventory. I think the biggest concerns about the TAD um, that was raised in quite a few comment letters is around the committee's observation that it's conceivable that circumstances exist in which registra- registration rights might meet the definition of inventories. So those respondents say, you know, first of all, a discussion around uh, inventories goes beyond the fact pattern that in the submission. And also, and perhaps more importantly, um, they said that, you know, if the committee decides to discuss, you know, uh, accounting for inventories in this regard, then the committee should also address some other questions that are related to this. So, for example, um, how on initial recognition an entity would actually determine whether a registration right is inventory, especially because a football club, club doesn't doesn't generally know on initial recognition which players will eventually be transferred. Also, how an entity would measure inventory, you know, for, for example, how to deal with variable consideration, subsequent measurement, um, how, to, how to apply that in a situation like that, and also whether it's possible to transfer a registration right between uh, inventory and intangible assets. So my view on this is, uh, you know, I guess in theory, it's conceivable that registration rates rights may be classified as inventory, but I think in practice, this is highly unlikely and, you know, therefore addressing it in a gender decision could actually create differences in reporting rather than reduce diversity in practice. So, yeah, so um, I think the, the feedback on the um, tentative agenda decision also indicated that uh, football clubs do not actually classify registration rights as, as inventory. So respondents say including a discussion about inventory you know, would actually create differences in reporting practices unless the committee also provides information on how to actually apply IS-2 in such a situation. So I think the committee uh, ultimately acknowledged those concerns and concluded that the wording on when registration rights might be classified as inventory would in fact not be helpful in terms of reducing diversity in practice and thus you know, in finalizing the agenda decision the committee decided to delete the discussion around IS2 from the tentative agenda decision. Now, the final point I'd like to mention is the discussion around uh, possible standard setting. There were quite a few respondents who suggested that, you know, the committee should consider an amendment to IS38 similar to that in paragraph 68A of IS16. 
So that would mean that, you know, such an amendment would require an entity to trans transfer intangible assets to inventory when they're held for sale in the ordinary course of business. So the entity would then recognize any proceeds received on that sale as revenue applying IFRS 15. So personally, I, given the increase in business models that involve the disposal of intangibles that we see in practice, I'm, I'm a supporter of considering standard setting in this area. So to conclude, I think the key messages are some respondents said that an amendment would likely be applicable to entities in, indus in other industries other than football. Um, I'm hearing qu uh, quite a bit of mixed messages on this point, but personally, I do think that other industries may be affected, which is why I thought it would be helpful to highlight this topic to people. Uh, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, those 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 other industries would necessarily all be affected. But I think the key message I'm trying to convey here is that the committee discussion reminds people about the presentation requirements in IS-38 mm. on gains resulting from the disposal of intangibles. And so I, I would really encourage entities to think about the implications of this IFRIC discussion on their accounting whenever their business models involve the disposal of intangibles. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think if you're um, in business and you see the title of this agenda decision and it's transfer fees, you just wouldn't even necessarily look at it if you weren't in the football industry. So um, de definitely exactly. a key message there to look in other industries. And it's the other point is IS38, you know, it doesn't deal with the situation where businesses use intangibles in their business and then potentially license or sell them in the future. So, oh, it's a tricky one, that one. It is, it is. And did they, sorry, I know you mentioned it there. Did they, are they going to suggest it to the board as a project? Well, we didn't really formally uh, vote on that. The, the purpose was really to get committee members' views on, on, on okay. the direction of this. And, um, you know, uh, there were quite a few committee members who thought that addressing this uh, via standard setting might be a good idea. I'm with you. I'm one of them. Come on. Come on, yeah. ISB. Change IS38. <laughs> okay. I could talk about that one all day, but we've got two more to get through. So let's move on to taxes, IS12. Exciting one. Um, another decision around this one was um, deferred tax related to an investment in a subsidiary. So again, could you give us a little high level of this submission? Yeah, I think we already covered this in the uh, in the I previous podcast, but I, I'll try to keep this short. Just as a high level reminder, the submission asked how an entity in its consolidated financial statements account for deferred taxes to, um, related to its investment in a subsidiary when uh, undistributed, undistributed profits of a subsidiary give rise to taxable temporary differences. Uh, the entity expects the subsidiary to, to distribute its undistributed profits in the foreseeable future, and the entity uh, and subsidiary operate in a jurisdiction in which profits are taxable only when they are distributed. So the tax rate for undistributed profit is zero. And in, in this example, in the submission, the tax rate for profit distributions would be 20%. Distributions are taxable only once, and the tax paid by the subsidiary is the subsidiary's tax liability. So basically, on a high level, the question was whether the entity would recognize no deferred taxes until a distribution is actually made by the subsidiary, or instead, recognizes a deferred tax at the rate that applies to distributed profits. So I think the key aspect in this analysis is that the guidance in IS-12 should be applied from the perspective of the reporting entity. And since the question relates to the accounting in the consolidated financial statements, the reporting entity is the group. And therefore, um, a, high, a deferred tax should be recognized at the rate that re reflects the tax consequences of recovering its investment in the subsidy. That is, 
the entity uses the tax rate that applies to distributions to measure the deferred tax liability. Okay, perfect. I do remember that one. It wasn't the 0%. I remember that. Yeah. And um, did uh, the staff were obviously recommending finalising that? Did that all go through? Yeah, we, we received, I think, 11 comment letters, which were mostly supportive. Committee members were also broadly supportive with the analysis, and there really was very little discussion on this matter. Yeah. Um, and so we basically finalised the agenda decision as drafted with you know, only a minor editorial change to the wording. Perfect. Okay, so then we get into a new standard, IFRS 16. This one you had a few more letters about, and it was to do with how a seller lessee measures the right of use asset um, arising from a leaseback. And obviously that's then going to impact your gain or loss on the transaction. So I suppose I've given you a little high level there, but what what had you previously decided in the TAD? I love this, Carlson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just as a reminder, in, in the March meeting, the uh, committee issued a TED on the submission about the sale leaseback transactions with variable payments, where the submitter asks how how the seller lessee measures the right of use asset arising from the leaseback and any corresponding gain or loss arising from the sale leaseback transaction. So, uh, just to remind people of the fact pattern that was submitted, an entity enters into a sale leaseback transaction uh, whereby it transfers an item of PPE to another entity and leases that asset back. The transfer of the PPE satisfies the requirements in IFRS 15 to be accounted for as a sale and the payments uh, for the lease, which at market rates include variable payments. Uh, in this case, calculate as a percentage of the seller lessee's revenue generated using the PPE. So back in March, the committee tentatively concluded that IFRS 16 provides adequate basis for an entity to determine at the date of the transaction, the accounting for the sale and leaseback transaction, and, and thus published at, at TAD. Now, I think it's worth highlighting that the TAD just covered the initial accounting for that transaction and that the committee felt that IFRS 16 does not contain sufficient guidance to allow the committee to conclude on the subsequent accounting for that liability. Uh, therefore, the committee decided to issue a, a TAD that only deals with the initial accounting and to ask the board to amend IFRS 16 to clarify the subsequent accounting for the liability arising from the transaction. So there's now a board project that has picked this up. Brilliant. Okay. So did that, um, like I said, I think you got 20 letters, the most out of the uh, Gen decision. Um, what happened? What were the next steps? Yeah, that, that's right. We received a total of 20 comment letters where actually there was a majority disagreeing with the committee's analysis Ooh. and conclusions. Um, I think uh, 12 uh, disagreed and um, eight agreed, so a slight majority disagreeing. Um, and, and those respondents who disagree with the committee's conclusion on the initial measurement of the liability, um, they, they disagree um, because they think the initial measurement of the liability at the date of the transaction um, conflicts with the requirements, the general requirements in paragraph uh, 26 to 28 of IFRS 16. Uh, some were also saying that uh, there's a conflict with the initial, me initial measurement of both the right of use asset and the liability at the date of the transaction. You know, again, in the general section of IFRS 16. Um, a few of those also um, have concerns 
um, you know, both actually both those agreeing and those disagreeing, there were quite a few who had concerns about describing the liability that arises in the sale leaseback as a lease liability. Now, of course, when a majority of the comment letters uh, disagrees with the, where, the, where the committee got to, um, the technical arguments brought forward by those who disagree need to be analyzed carefully. Yeah. So, so, so we don't have time to go into the details, but I think at a at a very high level, the most prevalent concern was the measurement of the right of use asset or the liability arising from the uh, leaseback. That this was inconsistent with the general measurement require requirements in IFRS 16 for other right of use assets or lease liabilities. That is those not arising from a sale leaseback transaction. Now, I think that they are right in the sense that. Um, both the liability and the right of use asset arising as a consequence of the sale spec transaction is not measured in the same way as right of use assets and li uh, liabilities are normally measured. That is, you know, outside of a sale spec transaction. Now, now, in my view, the staff has done uh, an excellent job in explaining in the staff paper why the measurement differs in the case of a sale spec transaction. And on a high level, this is simply because the board introduced into IFRS 16 sale and lease back requirements that are different from those for a standalone lease. So for example, the staff paper highlighted that measuring the right of use asset at a proportion of the previous amount, carrying amount as required for sale lease back transactions does not uh, and cannot uh, result in measuring the right of use asset as required by the general measurement requirements in IFRS 16 outside of sales back transactions. So personally, I think this analysis is quite convincing. And my sense is that other committee members were also supportive of this analysis. Okay, perfect. So not a popular one for once. Um, and uh, the staff obviously analysed in detail. What, what, what was the outcome? Uh, well, yes, it, it was finalised, but there were a few changes made to the wording in finalising the agenda decision. Uh, um, in particular, um, I think two. Um, one, the committee agreed to refer to the liability more generally as a liability rather than a lease liability in response to the feedback received from the comment letters, which questioned the nature of that liability. You know, you know as I mentioned, the nature of that liability will be addressed separately by the board uh, with the objective of doing some narrow scope standard setting in this area to clarify the nature of that liability and the su subsequent accounting for that liability. And second, uh, it was agreed to specify within the example in the agenda decision that the seller lessee cannot measure the right of use asset at zero. I think this is consistent with the earlier discussions at the committee. So my sense is this is really just a clarification in the wording. Okay, so all finalized, that's exciting. And then um, one that, actually you ended up spending lots of time on not an agenda decision but we spoke you gave us some insight and explained to me what reverse factoring was i remember on our last podcast what did the staff come and tell you about reverse factoring um this time yeah sure so i, I could talk about this topic for hours but i, I, but I realized it. <laughs> i realized we are running out of time yeah so i will perhaps start again with a quick reminder of what a reverse factoring arrangement is. So that's an arrangement involving three parties, an entity that purchases a good or service, a supplier providing those goods or services, and a financial institution. And in such an arrangement, the financial institution agrees to pay amounts an entity owes to its suppliers 
and the entity agrees to pay the financial institution at a later date than suppliers are paid. You know, there are two broad types of respecting arrangements. Uh, those primarily set up to enable an entity's supplier to receive payment before the due date and those uh, uh, to enable an entity to settle trade payables later than the due date. So reverse factoring arrangements that enable an entity's suppliers to receive early payment uh, are the most common. Uh, this type of arrangement often does not extend the payment terms agreed between the entity and the suppliers and typically does not change other terms of the liability. So accordingly, the entity often pays the financial institution at the date on which payment was originally due to the supplier. However, these arrangements vary. And so in some cases, there may also be extended credit terms for the entity. Now, at a high level, the discussion basically covered the, you know, the following areas. First, the application of current IFRS standards to reverse, reverse factoring arrangements. And second, a discussion around whether the committee should add a project to its standard setting agenda. Um, so focusing on the application of current IFRS standards to such arrangements, there are a number of questions around the presentation of reverse factoring arrangements in the entity's financial statements. I think there are basically three main areas. First, how an entity presents its obligations arising from reverse factoring in its statement of financial position. Second, how an entity presents its obligations in its cash flow statements. And the third one is disclosure. So what an entity is required to disclose about reverse factoring arrangements. So the committee spent more than two hours discussing these questions and we, we wow. don't have time to go into the, any detail. So if you're interested in this topic, I recommend you have a look at the staff paper and the June IFRIC up, update, which should come out shortly, or, or perhaps it's already out by the time this podcast <laughs> is published. You've given away our secrets, Carsten. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the discussion also get, uh, covered getting views from committee members on possible standard setting in this area as well. So, so I, I realize we don't have time to cover all those areas. I will just say on a very high level, a couple of things to keep in mind for entities that have set up programs that involve the settlement of trade liabilities under a reverse factoring or similar program. So first, investors are highly interested in information in the, on these programs. So while there's certainly some judgment involved around the, the way entities present such programs in their financial statements, providing transparency to stakeholders around these programs is, is key. Second, there are existing IFRS requirements for presentation of reverse factoring programs, both in the statement of financial position and in the cash flow statement, and also existing disclosure requirements that need to be considered for entities involved in reverse factoring programs. I recommend you have a look at the IFRIC update, which reminds people about those existing requirements that apply to reverse factoring. Uh, and last, watch out for a possible narrow scope standard setting project that may add more requirements aiming to further increase transparency around reverse factoring programs. Brilliant. So this, I feel like, is going to go on with the Interpretations Committee. We've got lots more to do on it. it is, yes. Okay, good. One day, Carsten, I won't make you commit to it now. Let's have a whole 20 minutes just about supply chain financing and reverse factoring. Sounds so exciting. Sure. We have to cover it, I think. <laughs> sure. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Condensing four hours into, I reckon we were, you know, not far off 20 minutes. If you cut out my nonsense around you, Carson, you definitely stuck to the 20 minute rule. So <laughs> thank you very much for coming back. We'll speak to you again. When's the next IFRIC? Oh. Have you got a little break for summer? Or have you got another one in July? I, I'm not sure at this moment. I, 
Just getting off that epic meeting. Just kidding. So, so I literally everyone interview him as yet. soon as he gets out of the meeting, and I'm already like, "When's the next one? When are the papers coming out? What's on the agenda?" <laughs> Recover from this one, and then we'll chat together soon so thank you very much listeners there'll be lots of information about these topics on pwc inform and the ifric update um, on the ifrs website Uh, thank you for listening stay safe and happy accounting the preceding program was brought to you by price waterhouse coopers llp this content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors